This week, we're entering into our own Advent series, and I have a a title, or uh, not a title necessarily, but a theme, and I want you to take some time and just think about this. If you you have a pen, if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to write this down. This is the theme over uh, this series or this season. It's this, that the promised deliverer has come, bringing good news of great joy for all people. The promised deliverer has come bringing good news of great joy for all people. We'll just take a moment and awkwardly allow you to meditate on that statement. I'll say it once more. The promised deliverer has come, bringing good news of great joy for all people. Now, I said that I wanted you to take a moment and awkwardly meditate on that, but really what I wanted is a few people to say amen. There we go. No, I'm just kidding. But really think about that. The promised deliverer has come, and he has brought good news of great joy for all people. The first thing I want us to pick apart this morning is that first little part, that first few, verse, or few words. The promised deliverer. The promised deliverer. If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to just look at, as we get started... The first four verses of our Bible. We'll go from Genesis chapter 4 and we'll jump into Genesis 3. We'll quickly jump to Genesis 12 and then we'll move to Exodus 20. And then we'll spend the next four hours going through the rest of the Bible. There we go. No, I'm just kidding. Generally, we'll zoom in and spend our time granularly working through a small passage of Scripture. This morning we're going to zoom out, continue to work through the text, and pick a few pieces out. And so Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is what the Word of God says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said... Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Together, would you pray with me? Take a moment and ask God to bless the reading of his word in our ears. Father, we pray again, confidently in the name of Jesus, for you to bless this word in our ears this morning. May we see you more clearly, your holiness, your greatness. Father, would we see our sin in all of its terrible depths? Would we see it more fully this morning? And Father, would we see Christ, the center of Advent, the center of our lives in this church? It's in his name that we ask these things. Amen. And so I gave you the main idea or the theme for the, ser- the series, but I want to give you the main idea for the sermon this morning, and that's this, that God, the God that spoke the world into existence, he also spoke to us a promise that he would rescue it. The God that spoke the world into existence also spoke to us a promise that he would rescue it. And what I hope that you'll see as we work through the the sermon, the text this morning, is that we can be just as confident about his promises to us as we are that his 
word came true as he spoke it. You see, the Bible is not given to us as a systematized volume of information. You can't turn to to page 1 and read all about God and then page 15 all about man and then page 17 all about... We don't get to do that. That's not what we've been given. For the most part, the things that we know about God, the things that we know about man, and the things that we know about angels, we have incrementally gathered from the series of books that he has given to us, revealing information about himself, about us, about the world that we live in. He thereby allows us to see who he is and who we are. And we do this, we see this mostly through his interactions, especially in the Old Testament as we hear the stories, the true stories that have been given to us. We're able to piece them together and see this is what God is like. This is what God has done. And we systematize those things and it's incredibly helpful. As a matter of fact, our children are systematically going through the character traits of God, learning about all of his attributes, at least the ones he's revealed to us. Of course, when we gather all this information, we put it in order. That's called systematic theology. It's very helpful. But again, that's not what we've been given this morning. We're going to start right here in the beginning. God, assuming that we believe in him, assuming that we can see and understand that this place didn't just come about, he speaks to us and he begins to tell us exactly what happened in the beginning. I don't know if you know this. But the amount of information that's given in the first few chapters of the Bible is literally invaluable. And it's so jam-packed. If you only had a few moments, maybe to read the Bible, you say, this week I'll only be able to read, or maybe this year I'll only be able to read a few chapters. I would say it might be a toss-up between uh, Genesis 1 through 15 all of Ro- or all of Romans, one or the other. And maybe this, week, this year you should meditate on Genesis 1 through 15 and next, uh, next month or next year rather meditate on uh, Romans. I don't know. I'm not setting the plan this, this coming year. But at any rate, it's incredibly condensed. It's jam-packed. And the information that we receive in Genesis 1 all the way up to Genesis 15, I would say, is so foundational and important. God begins in Genesis 1 by, be, by telling us, what he was doing there in the beginning. Remember, God is not bound by time. He is altogether outside of time, which is in itself a creation of our God. In the great timeline of human existence, we would place Ramesses the the second in 13th century BC. We would place Genghis Khan in the 13th century, Da Vinci in the 15th, Julius Caesar in the first century BC, Einstein in the 20th, you and I here in the 21st. But where should we place God on the timeline of human existence? He's altogether outside of time. But in the beginning of our time, God created the heavens and the earth. He's before and he is after. He is the first and the last. He exists outside of his creation, outside of time itself. But here we see God stepping into space, stepping into creation, Stepping into existence as we know it, he begins to create. There's nothing, and he steps in, and then there is everything, just by the word of his mouth. And so if we were to break this sermon up into two sections, the first section would be this, his words in creation. His words in creation. We're going to focus on God's mouth as he speaks the world into existence. And so number one, his words in creation. Into the vast blank canvas, God placed stars. 
and planets, grass and trees, deer and fish, man and woman. God speaks, let there be. And then the action follows. The fulfillment of the very thing that he commands. And then finally, in this rhythm that we see, he pronounces it good. And so God, we see given an imperative. We see a fulfillment of that imperative. And then finally, we see his pronouncement. Let there be light. And there was light, and it was good. There's a rhythm there that we see. We saw it just in the first few verses that we read. If you were to continue to read through chapter 1, which we won't for sake of time, not that it's not valuable, but you could swap, you could switch down to verse 20 and see some more. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above and across the earth, the expanse of heaven. And so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with, uh, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And what does it say? And God saw that it was good. And so we see the imperative we see the fulfillment of that imperative, and then we see the pronouncement. It is good. So much has happened in this little short chapter, and it ends with this summary. Genesis chapter 1, verses 31, and we'll go ahead and read on into the first few verses of chapter 2. It says this in verse 31, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. His word, let there be the fulfillment and it was so. And the pronouncement, it was good. Here as a summary, verse 31, it was very good. I want you to really stop and meditate on the power that God is flexing, that he's demonstrating. Having known so little, other than the fact that he exists, and now reading this, we, we see God speaking everything into existence. And everything at this point in time being good. Unfortunately, we know that things don't stay very good for very long, right? Many of you are saying, hey, this may be the first time I've read the Bible. Perhaps these few verses are the first that you've read. And you say, how can this be true? I see what you say. I hear what you've read. And yet, when I go through life, I don't see that it's very good. Well, there, like I said, uh, there is a lot of information in the first few chapters of the Bible. I mean, there's a lot, a uh, lot more afterwards. In fact, it includes the fall. Satan comes to Eve. He tempts her. She, along with her husband, they disobey God. And in essence, man rebels against God. What does God do? What's interesting, we see him speak again. God speaks again. He calls out to man. He calls out to them and he asks them where they are, what's taking place. They answer him. And then God speaks and he gives a consequence for their action. He pronounces a curse on man, on woman, and even on this serpent, which is more than a snake. 
which is Satan himself. And what we see in his statement or in his words is that it's assumed that what he gives them is right and fair and good and just. I'm going to zoom in particularly in chapter 3. And so if you're there in Genesis, swap over to Genesis chapter 3. Verses 14 and 15. I want to look particularly at the verse that, that, that includes the curse that God speaks against this serpent, against Satan. Verse 14, it says, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust, uh, dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And so here God is pronouncing a curse. It's a fair curse. And as evidenced in biology, the curse has come true. In the sense that judgment was fair and right and true and good. But there's something nestled in this curse that, that God gives to the serpent that is in essence a bit different, different than the language that we see up into this point. God has spoken things happen. I, you are cursed here in the present. You're cursed right now. He's given present imperatives. Let there be light. But now he speaks in what's called a future indicative. Saying, not this is happening right now, but he begins to speak into the future and he says, this is something that I will do in the future. What does he say? Look at verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring, he, the offspring of the woman, will bruise your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. God is using language in a way at this point that has, again, like I said, not been used up until this point in time. It's embedded in the present curse of the serpent, the promise of redemption. So up until this point, God speaking in the present says, let there be, and then there is, and it is good. But things change, and God says, there will be. And it's his promise of redemption. And so the second part of our sermon this morning is the promise of redemption. The promise of redemption. Just to recap for a moment quickly. God speaks all of creation into existence, including mankind. Everything is good. But man rebels against God. And God pronounces a curse against all parties involved. And in that curse of, the, of Satan, the serpent, he speaks a promise to us. And that promise is to deliver them. I suggest only a slight difference in the form of these two statements that God has been making. Gen isolate Genesis 1, let there be light. Genesis 3, I will put enmity. Really, they're only different because of the intended timing. It's the only difference. You see, built into this future promise is a future component according to webster a, a promise is this a statement telling someone that something will definitely happen in the future could even include you doing something and so a promise is a statement telling someone that something will definitely happen in the future what is the difference between a promise of a coming deliverer and let there be light Simply this, the future component. 
One is happening in the present, and one is happening in the future. One is just as sure as the other. You see, God's promise is not a divine hope. When I promise things, when you promise things, we hope for the best. Just this week, I heard that President Biden let, somebody, uh, let a child know that her stutter would go away. He promised her. Well, I imagine he's probably right, and yet I would not be so bold to promise something like that. Why? Because we don't know. And yet God, when he makes a promise, it's not wishful thinking. It's not a divine hope. It's as sure to come to pass as his statement, let there be light. And so we have God's promise or his statement, his present imperatives come into being. Let there be light. And then we have his future promise. Both of them, one assures the other. And really, the promise that God is making to those in attendance that morning there in Genesis chapter 3 and us gathered here this morning, it's to all of us. And really, the rest of the Bible from that point on, I would argue, is unpacking and further developing this promise that we read in Genesis chapter 3. God speaking to the serpent. Your head will be crushed and you will bruise the heel of the deliverer, the seed of the woman. Genesis chapter 12, God continues to further develop this understanding and awareness of the deliverer. He speaks a promise to Abraham. He speaks into this man's life, starts a relationship with this pagan idol worshiper, speaks a promise to him. He promises that to Abraham that he will make him a great nation in chapter 12. He promises that he'll give him a great name, that he'll give him a great family, one that there's so many people in his family, it'll be like the sands of the sea and the stars in the sky. He promises him great protection. I'll bless them that bless you. I'll curse them that curse you. And what's interesting is all of these promises come true. Just as sure as God declaring into darkness, let there be light, his promise to Make a great nation, great name, great family, great protection, and great blessing was just as sure to come. And surely you notice that these promises given to Abraham have come true. If you're paying attention, you might recognize that I left one promise out. It's the promise that God gave to Abram. First, there in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, he says this to Abram. After all of these things, he says, in you, Abram, though you have no descendants yet, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's such a bold statement. It's almost as bold as somebody saying in the darkness, let there be light. That one man without children could be used by God to bless every family of the earth. What greater blessing than to be able by the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent to bring about that deliverer through your family. What an incredible blessing. And this we see is God's further development of his promise there in Genesis chapter three. Furthermore, we see if we move, move on a little bit farther, move away from Abram into, his, into the life of the, his descendants who, is the, who are the children of Israel. God speaks to Moses. Moses there in the wilderness God comes to him and says, I've heard the cry of my people, the people that I have brought into existence, the people that are the descendants of Abraham. I am Abraham's God. 
He comes to them and he says, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to set you free. I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And he does just that. He springs them from bondage there in Egypt, brings them out into the wilderness, and starts a new covenant with them. Exodus chapter 20, verse number one. I don't know why. I was telling Brett this week, that's some of the most emotional language that I can, uh, words that I can read at this point in my life. Exodus chapter 20, verse one. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Why is that such a powerful thing to read? Because God has no need to speak. God has no need to have a people. And yet in his kindness and in his mercy, he speaks to his creatures and he makes a covenant with them. He had promised to Abraham. He had promised to mankind in Genesis 3. He promised to the, to, to the serpent, Satan. And he's continuing to unpack and fulfill this promise, not just through Abraham, not just through Moses, but on and on the word of God goes. The main idea, as I said a moment ago, is that God spoke the world into existence and he also spoke to us a promise that he would rescue it. This morning we lit the first candle of Advent, the candle of hope. It represents hope. Do we have hope? We do. And that hope is based, based on, it extends from this promise that God has given to us, that he would, in fact, send a deliverer, that he, through Abraham's uh, line, would bless all the families of the earth, and that he would be our God, and we would be his people. What a hope that we have this morning. As we enter into this Christmas season, the world, the flesh, the devil would have you to take your eyes off of Christ. Take your eyes and, and place your hopes on something else. And that for your hopes to be hung on something other than what was found in a stable 2,000 years ago. That you would place your hope on a new car or on a new job. Perhaps a new relationship. And yet in all of these things we are hopeless. Only in Christ do we find true hope. And if you look at the Advent wreath, four candles on the exterior, on the outside perimeter. In the center, we have one large white candle. This candle represents Christ. Christ is, in fact, the center of our hope. He is the basis of our hope. What's interesting is that Colossians tells us that God created the world by the power and through his Son. And not only did his Son create all things, but that through the power of the Son, all things continue to exist. Furthermore, scriptures teach us that this same Jesus, who created and sustained the world, is also he who has come to deliver. And finally, it is he who will come again. We pin our hopes as Christians on the only thing that truly gives hope, and that is what is found at the center of this wreath, and that is Christ himself. So as we enter into this season, as we smell the smells of Douglas fir, 
and cinnamon and whatever else. As we decorate our homes, our places of worship, and even our necks, I pray that you come to know Jesus and the hope that he offers more fully. Again, we began this service by lighting the candle of hope at, at his coming, his first coming. As the deliverer, we had hope realized. The final candle, I said, the Christ candle. We'll light it on December 24th. Why do we set it in the center? Why do we have Christ as our focus in this season? Not just because he was a baby born in a manger and that's awful precious, but because of the truth that we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. All the promises of God find their yes in him. The promise in a sense, let there be light. It's fulfilled in Christ. It's fulfilled by Christ. The promise that the serpent's head would be crushed and that we would be delivered from our sins and that presses us. It's found its yes in Christ. The hopes and dreams of all the years are met in Christ. And I pray that that would be true in your life. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song, O Holy Night. I love the words of the songs that we sing. Have I already said that today? Listen to this particular verse. Come then to him who lies within a manger. With joyful shepherds proclaim him as Lord. Let not the promised son remain a stranger. In reverent worship, make Christ your adored. Eternal life is theirs who would receive him. With grace and peace, their lives he will adorn. Fall on your knees. Receive the gift of heaven. O night divine, O night when Christ was born. Church, in just a moment we'll come to the table Come to him who lies in a manger. Along with the joyful shepherds, we will proclaim him as Lord as we come and share in his supper. And I recognize that in a crowd this size, there may be some that would still say, the promised son, the Lord, he is yet a stranger to me. I pray that in this season, as this church gathers, as you share meals and conversations, that you will come to the place under the authority of God's word where you say at the feet of Jesus that he is your Lord and that he is no longer this promised son, a stranger. At his first coming, Jesus fulfilled the promise to deliver us from the curse of sin and the clutches of the serpent. At his second coming, he will re return to bring us into his presence eternally. And as I said at the beginning of our sermon, our time together, we live in the middle of these two realities. So as we come to this table, we are reminded of both, that he has come and he is coming again. He did what he promised to do in sending the deliverer, and he will do what he has still promised to do, to return for us. The fulfillment of one really gives confidence and authority to the other. 
that he came demonstrates that he will come again. Just as sure as Jesus died, resurrected, ascended to the Father, so he will return to gather his saints, his children with him, and so will we ever be with our Lord. One of the ways that we as a church not just a local church, but a universal church, one of the ways that we have confidently embraced that promise given to us by the Lord himself is by observing the Lord's Supper. And so as we come to the Lord's table this morning to celebrate the communion of the body and the blood of Christ, we're grateful to remember that our Lord instituted this very ordinance as a pledge of his coming. He pledged, he promised that he would come again. And we lay hold of that promise in some sense as we come to this table.